I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, we explore the life and work of the master of the 19th century French short story, Guy de Maupassant, in the company of his recent biographer, Christopher Lloyd, who's emeritus professor of French at Durham. Depending on your age and background, you may have read some Maupassant at school, or perhaps on a literature survey course at university. He's much anthologised. But that has proved something of a mixed blessing. The same pieces crop up again and again, just a tiny fraction of his 300 short stories. In France, by some estimates, he's the best-selling classic author, thanks to continuing educational sales there too. So his name is well known. Many people feel they know his work. But as Christopher Lloyd's book shows, most of us have barely glimpsed the full extent of Maupassant's writing, which includes half a dozen novels, as well as the short fiction, and a wide range of themes which one French edition has meticulously catalogued. It includes devil, divorce, double, duel, strangling, fantastic, madness, drunkenness, which maybe already give some insight into the often dark and dangerous world that Maupassant's characters inhabit. His life was no less fraught. Glancing back at the notes I made when reading Chrissy's book, immediately under Maupassant's dates, 1850 to 1893, note the brevity of his life, I've written Untreatable syphilis, failed suicide, paralysis, 18-month confinement. However, on the line below that, but energy, vitality, with the word vitality underlined. And those are some of the aspects of Maupassant's life and work we discussed. Later in this interview, Chris gives his own recommendations of where to start with reading Maupassant. But when we spoke on the phone recently, I began by asking Chris to take us back to 1850 and to describe the milieu into which Guy de Maupassant was born. Well, he seems to have been born into, I think, what I call the upper ranks of the kind of provincial bourgeoisie. He was born in Normandy and wrote a great deal about Normandy until he kind of moved to Paris. And then, obviously, as he became wealthy, he was able to travel around Europe and North Africa and extend his kind of range. 
he seems to have had this visceral attachment to Normandy, very, a very sort of sensual, earthy figure in many ways, um, and that's seen from his sort of childhood onwards. So he's very much someone who's attached to nature and particular places. I've never quite been able to understand some of the problems which his parents had. I mean, they were kind of twofold, which affected Lucas on his brother. Two sorts of problems, really. One was the kind of temperamental mismatch between his parents. Eventually, they separated, but they couldn't divorce legally. So Lucasan was brought up by his mother, and he and his brother seemed to have, you know, lived fairly happily with her, you know, until they they grew up. And the main problem which caused the separation of the control too, one was his father perhaps was a bit of a philanderer. There's not that much information about the relationship between the parents. Maupassant never talks about that at all. In, in many ways, he's a very private individual in terms of feelings, as he said. And then there was a financial problem. The father lost most of his money. They were quite wealthy at one point. They were not rich, but they certainly come to be off and, and lived in quite a grand style with servants and large houses and so on and so forth. But somehow that got lost. And although Maupassant goes on at great length in his correspondence with his father about the grandfather's legacy, which turned out just to be a load of debts. No one has really got to the bottom of it. But the upshot was that both the father and Lucasan himself had to take relatively menial jobs. And for the best part of 10 years, Lucasan worked as a clerk in various government offices in Paris. A key event in his sort of early manhood was the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War as he was in effect called up and he was in the army about 15 months. So that's in 1873-1871. And that, of course, had a massive disruptive effect on the whole of the French society and uh, polity. So this was the kind of first German invasion, which in 1870, followed by another one 70 years later. And in each case, there was an occupation. The difference being, obviously, that in 1871, it, it was all sorted out relatively quickly with massive reparations paid by the French, the collapse of the political regime, the um, Second Empire, and um, the loss of two provinces. So Maupassant started off living this relatively quiet provincial life, slightly impoverished, but still a member of the kind of bourgeoisie, being a student, you know, being educated to quite a high level, and I'm a majority of people, suddenly found himself in the army in the middle of a catastrophe. And that, I think, was one of the key events informing his attitude towards what you might call social issues and political issues, basically mm. a great contempt and suspicion of people in high positions, politicians, generals, any representatives of authority. And you mentioned there that he spent about a decade working as a, a relatively humble clerk in a government ministry. I mean, is it also important to mention that simultaneously he was a very vigorous physical sportsman you know you reproduce a picture of him in hunting garb but he also fenced and he was a very avid rower and also that he had a very how shall we put it a very sort of prolific sexual career at the same time too he was a very physical sensual character so it's slightly paradoxical in a way because on the one hand you've got this man who writes prolifically in his spare time during these 10 years often living in quite circumscribed situation in a garret, you know, certainly in a sort of cheap room in Paris where he's having to count every centime, and then a lot of time spent doing what was basically humdrum bureaucratic work, not perhaps all that demanding 
either in terms of hours or what, what sort of you know intellectual skills it, it demanded, but certainly taking up quite a lot of his energy. And then the sensualist, so there's a kind of a threefold figure. But he's, of course, the sensualist is reflected in a lot of the stories and, and novels about frustrated young men trying to find um, uh, satisfaction both in relationships primarily with women and a certain social recognition and escape from poverty. He seems to have been extremely promiscuous in his youth, uh, but that perhaps is not particularly exceptional, you know, in people who are free from family attachments and um, in the society of the time when girls from the same social class as Maupassant were not really available, those from what you might call the respectable classes, inevitably young men were driven towards prostitutes, you know, and um, women from less privileged backgrounds. Uh, with the consequences of the, the risk of catching sexually transmitted diseases, which is, I mean, the one thing we haven't said about Maupassant yet, which perhaps one ought to, is that he was immensely prolific as a writer, had a great deal of, um, shall we say, sexual indulgence with vast numbers of women, but died young uh, as a direct consequence, really, of his activities, almost certainly through catching syphilis when he was in, in his mid-twenties and finally uh, dying of the consequences of the disease, which basically attacks the nervous system um, if untreated and leads to paralysis and insanity, which is unfortunately exactly what happened to him that the last 18 months of his life was spent in a kind of clinic, you know, as he gradually lost control of his body and mind. So he died in 1893 at the age of 42. And do you see that disease as having cast a long shadow over his, both his lived life and his creative life. I mean, I think you quote a letter when he is diagnosed with syphilis and he's really boasting about it. It's like a badge of honour. And then, of course, as years go by, you know, the consequences are borne in upon him. How much of a shadow do you think that casts over his life and, and work? Well, I guess one shouldn't exaggerate it. It's quite hard to answer that because ostensibly Maupassant never made the connection between having syphilis in his youth as the badge of honour and having to endure rather unpleasant treatment uh, with mm. mercury and various other you know, toxic drugs. I think the problem was in terms purely of the um, state of medical knowledge at the time that the symptoms appeared to disappear after, after a few weeks of rather unpleasant, you know, obvious pustules and skin eruptions, you know, in various areas of the body. And then the, the symptoms vanished. And then when the symptoms recur, they're different. So yes. in Lopassant's case, he was affected by severe eye troubles. So his vision was very badly affected. He ended up having to use secretaries, you know, to, to take notes and things like that, dictate to them. And so there was no obvious causal chain to... Um, to either doctors or patients, although there were plenty of doctors who suspected that, you know, these symptoms were perhaps the consequences, but this wasn't known, sure, till the 20th century. So the shadow is perhaps, there's a tendency to, 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 to impose the shadow retrospectively, if you see what I mean, because we know a lot more about the pathology of the disease now than people did in the, the late 19th century. And of course, it recurs, as we know, in Many other writers, with Ibsen being one of the you know, most famous in Ghosts, when it was a kind of taboo area 
which was, of course, a subject of dread, partly because of the lack of knowledge. There was no real effective treatment until sort of the early decades of the 20th century. So, I mean, a number of famous writers and composers, of course, are cited as having died as this often cut short in early middle age, as well as anonymous people. For, for us, there's a great shadow. But there's a tendency perhaps to be a bit too mechanistic because Maupassant certainly is fascinated by madness in many of his stories, less, less so in his novels, but in, in the stories, insanity is a prevalent theme. He never talks about sexually transmitted diseases or only once or twice. And then uh, as, as regards prostitutes, you know, rather than their clients. But insanity seems to fascinate him. But again, I don't think it's very helpful to, to sort of make a deterministic image, if you like, between the state of his health and what he writes about, because it's perhaps just that he was very interested in the macabre anyway. It is a period where degeneration and morbidity and the macabre are very prevalent themes. Indeed, Fanders Jacqueline itself is a kind of similar, isn't it, for decline and degeneration. The other interesting thing that I picked out of his background is his mother was a very close friend of the novelist Gustave Flaubert. And Flaubert then became, I guess you might say, sort of mentor or a father figure to the young Maupassant. What kind of role did he play in getting Maupassant's career or his ideas of writing uh, in, in, in shaping those, would you say? Flaubert, who was... Um a friend of Maupassant's mother, who was called Leur, partly because her brother, Alphaïdle Poitvin, uh, was one of Flaubert's bosom friends. So there was a family link. Maupassant's uncle, therefore, was one of Flaubert's friends. And I think he saw a family resemblance in Guy, the nephew, if you like, when, when Maupassant began meeting him in these kind of teenage years. Flaubert and Maupassant had some sort of affinity, both, I think, temperamentally and through this family link. And certainly, Flaubert became a mentor in the sense that he was two ways, really. One, giving Maupassant advice on what he was writing by actually reading it and commenting on it and encouraging him to write. Although at the time, Maupassant was writing a lot of poetry rather than certainly not writing any long fiction and just trying out his hand, if you like, at various types of writing. That writing poetry was, was almost a commonplace thing to do at the time, it's worth saying, because you should bear in mind that anyone ed- educated to sort of, to the baccalaureate level, like Maupassant did study at university briefly, would have been taught to write poetry in Latin or probability. So that people were used to versifying. So Flaubert is writing to him saying, spend less time rowing and, you know, hanging out with the girls, get back to your garret and work on your poems. Although I think Flaubert thought his poems were terrible. But he felt he should encourage him just to, because he was a friend of the mother. And I think they, they liked each other in a kind of vuncular relationship, if you like. I mean, it's been suggested, again, by sort of biographers that perhaps Robert was actually his illegitimate father. But I think that myth has been discounted for various purely sort of practical reasons, you know, that it wasn't physically possible for that to have happened. But certainly he was a kind of adoptive father in a kind of professional sense. What he learned primarily from Flaubert was precision of observation. Um, so what you might call a kind of realist principle, which obviously fits writing prose and stories better than verse and lyrics, and achieving a kind of purity of style that's dependent, again, on a certain clarity, 
a kind of limpid style that isn't bombastic or romantic, but uh, based on intense observation and finding what flow they like to call them or used. There's a notion that there's a, a certain phrase or word that will fit whatever it is you're trying to communicate perfectly. So in that sense, Rupassant certainly was very heavily influenced by Flaubert. And eventually, of course, in 1879, he wrote a story which Flaubert recognized you know, as, as a masterpiece. That's Boule de Suif, of course, the famous story that the prostitutes abused by the Prussian officer during the Anglo-Prussian War. And that was Rupassant's kind of breakthrough. He got this story published in 1880, thanks to the help of Emile Zola, who was more of a contemporary, a senior sort of contemporary of Rupassant, who had already established himself as a writer of realistic um, novels, and also short stories, incidentally, and, and helped promote Maupassant by inviting him to contribute to a collective volume of short stories, along with Nismans and some other friends of theirs. One perhaps should add that Flaubert acted as a patron, also in, in intervening with some um, editors and also uh, stopping the prosecution, which was threatened when one of Maupassant's poems was deemed by a, a local prosecutor to, to be obscene, and the, the, uh, the threat of prosecution was lifted after some string pulling in which Robert was involved. I mean, you mentioned, Chris, that there was a certain cultural cachet attached to writing verse in the period, and the theatre was, was also a place where a writer could make his name and also make money if a play was successful. Within the sort of economy of literary production, if I can put it that way, of the period, where did the short story fit? There's a shift in the hierarchy, to put it very broadly, in the course of the 19th century, I would say. that The 19th century, by, by the mid-century, the, the sort of high genre is, is, is the novel, which certainly wouldn't have been the case in previous centuries when it would have been very much drama and uh, lyric poetry. So... That explains partly why writers still felt they could try their hand at poetry, that it was prestigious. Poetry wouldn't earn you much money unless you were writing in a much more popular style. The theatre was also very lucrative because authors generally got quite a good percentage of the box office receipts. So if they had a, a good run, you know, they would be earning a, a great deal of money, a lot more than you would get from sending a few thousand copies of a novel. The short story, in a sense, is seen perhaps more as a kind of way of um, marketing uh, newspapers and reviews because the brevity of the stories allows them to publish an entire story in a particular newspaper or review. It's perhaps worth saying that, of course, newspapers in the, in the 19th century, I mean, this I think applies to England as much as France or, or the US indeed, were not simply providing news, they were providing a lot of cultural content, in fact, as much cultural content in some cases as news. In fact, objective news barely featured at all in some of the newspapers in which Maupassant wrote. So there was a market for short stories, and partly because of the, the improvements in the education system, whereby by the end of the century you had mass literacy, and certainly even in Maupassant's day, most people could certainly read and, and write, at least to a limited extent. So the, the short story fitted the sort of media outlets, if you like, but wouldn't have been seen as prestigious because it was regarded as a form of entertainment primarily. Having said that, the Maupassant is one of the kind of key writers who helps establish the story as a literary genre, if you like, rather than as a more ephemeral 
way of spinning up, you know, a few pages of a review or a newspaper to beguile people or distract them. There's a vast army, really, of writers churning out this sort of material, most of whom were forgotten because it was very ephemeral, but it was lucrative. So again, it was an obvious market to, to tap if, if you were trying to make your way. I realise this is quite a quite a big question to ask you to, to sum this up, but if Maupassant was one of quite a number of writers who were turning out short stories, what is it that distinguishes his output and means that he's still widely read today, whereas most of the rest of them have been forgotten? I mean, I, I guess you could say he's genius, but what, I mean, what, what, what were the qualities that really have meant that he hasn't just been a, an ephemeral writer of, um, you know, hack copy. You quote um, Edmond de Goncourt, you know, saying he's a, he's a run-of-the-mill run copy that could be by anyone. But, you know, time has proved Goncourt wrong. So what qualities would you pick out? I mentioned Boulder Swift, didn't I, which is his best-known story. One way you can answer your question is if you look at the collection in which it appeared, which was called Les Soirées de Médan, the evenings of Médan, there's a six stories there by six different writers, including Zola, Ismond, and Maupassant. And the fact that it's not really worth mentioning the name of the other three writers is because they've sunk into obscurity. They're all stories about the Franco-Prussian War, all rather debunking and cynical. But the only one that goes beyond being vaguely interesting and entertaining is Maupassant's, including those by Zola and Ismond, which are not among their best efforts. And it's basically because Maupassant creates well, he does the things one wants from literary fiction, I suppose, that as well as being entertaining and drawing your interest in by telling you a story that's dramatic, he, he creates characters who, as it were, jump off the page, you know, even in the few pages, within a few pages, he can bring a character to life, both as a sort of physical presence, but also as a personality, so that they, the chubby prostitute in Bullo Suive, who is abused by the Prussians, once you've read that story, if you're attuned to Maupassant, you don't forget her. There are similar stories in the collection where I have very little rec- recollection at all of what goes on in them. Written in a style that is accessible in that he doesn't use obscure language or convoluted syntax, unlike other writers of the period who tend to seem terribly long-winded to readers of our generation used to kind of sparer writing. He has a kind of minimalist crispness in the way he writes. And yet he goes beyond the sort of pure functionality which most writers have who are simply trying to entertain. In other words, it's the question of going beyond the kind of cliches and conventional stereotypes which sort of more routine fiction simply endlessly recycles by a level of precision, a depth of understanding, and also a sensual perception of the world is that thing to stress a bit more. But he always has a, a mood of descriptive details that appeal to other senses, as well as sight particularly, but sound, smell, for example. He liked to create what he called the atmosphere which surrounds characters, like a sort of ecosystem, if you like, or environment. He he said that characters could only come to life if you could sort of convey the surroundings in which they live and which affect their whole being, their emotions, their trajectory, and so on and so forth. But he doesn't go into sort of the, the great descriptive inventories, which you get in other early 19th century novelists. He's much more stripped down, so he's much more laconic. But his main model was, was Turgenev, actually, another mentor figure of the generation of Flaubert, really. 
uh, whose work he read in translation, of course, and was again a personal friend of Rojasson's. But this this idea of I mean, Turgenev short of fiction he calls sketches. So his ability to kind of sketch in a background as well as the character in the foreground, which perhaps is the great uh, appeal which Rojasson has as a storyteller. Those virtues that you've mentioned about about concision, about not wasting words, about keeping the structure very tight, he carries those over into his novels, which are are short novels by by comparison with a lot of his peers, aren't they? Those those virtues that you've picked out are are on display there too. Yes, and Beaupassant um, is not particularly well known as a novelist because his production of stories actually. Uh, is, is considerably longer if you add them all up than his six published novels, which, as you, as you say, are on the whole rather brief. I think that is, in one sense, it's a strength. If, if his best novel is often regarded as being Pierre et Jean, which is basically an extended short story about the conflict between two brothers over an inheritance, and it's focused primarily on Pierre, the, the older brother who's enraged when he misses out. Uh, and that, that's as a sort of intense psychological drama, which is generally regarded as the strongest novel in terms of its kind of structure and focus on one or two characters. That, that of course, might be seen as a weakness if you're sort of trying to situate Maupassant with the sort of big names of the 19th century who, who create these massive sort of fictional frameworks. Um, Victor Hugo, Tolstoy, Flaubert, and particularly Balzac and Zola in terms of the realist novel. So Maupassant has a smaller stage, with perhaps the exception of Belle Amie, which is his longest novel, and I think that's his best one, which is very much a sort of novel in the style of Balzac and Zorin, that he's trying to create a social panorama with a vast array of characters, which focused on one particular artist, the sort of um, man who rises from being a peasant to uh, an army non-commissioned officer to a successful journalist in the course of a decade or so, and is an unscrupulous rogue, but extremely engaging. As a panoramic novel, certainly bears comparison with Balzac and Zola. And Maupassant's strengths, I think, are, in fact, his brevity, particularly if you compare him with similar novels by Balzac about Ariste, you know, Rastignac and people like that, so famous from Le Pengorio. But Maupassant gets on with it, as it were, the digressive nature of Balzac's novels, um, or like Hugo's, I find unbearable personally. So I think Beaupassant's opinion as a novelist perhaps um, might grow now that long novels are perhaps much less common. The sort of psychological study in depth of one or two characters is perhaps much more acceptable, as it were, to 20th century and 21st century readers. If you think of famous novels of the sort of mid-20th century in France, like L'Etranger or something, you know, these are very much similar stories focusing on one person and their particular diademas. You make the point that, even if we're just talking about the short stories, leaving the, the novels and other writing aside, but even talking about the short stories, certain stories get anthologized again and again and sort of reinforce certain views of Maupassant. And you mentioned that you sat you sat down and you read the entire you know corpus of short stories. But for someone who perhaps wants to dip a toe in, who hasn't you know has perhaps been interested in Maupassant by listening to this conversation, and wants to sample his writing, and doesn't have French, can you sort of point to a good place to start that gives at least some sense of his his range and his his depth and his skills? 
Well, well, I would certainly read the Boule de Suive, which I think is the, the best known story, and rightly so. Then, to some extent, it depends uh, if you're reading it in book form, in 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 the, in the say translation published by Penguin or, or UP, you would get some interesting stories surrounding it. There are other stories that are rarely made available, uh, like, for example, this uh, Rondoli or the Rondoli sisters, partly because it's rather bawdy. It shows Maupassant trying to be funny in a burlesque way, and I think he's quite successful. And then there's another story called La Petite Hoc, about a little girl called Hoc, which is a rather gruesome story, but very memorable. About It's about a child murderer, which, again, I've not seen in any English translation. I mean, it probably appears in some complete ones, but because it's um, in, in its way rather macabre, I think uh, editors tend to avoid it. But it shows Maupassant writing about the extreme nature of experience in a way that's still got a certain shock effect. I mean, that's one thing we haven't said so far, that unlike many 19th century writers who perhaps seem relatively strained, not to say tame, even people like Zola, who are regarded as obscene by the Victorians, we now see as pretty harmless compared to the sort of things you can read in Booker Prize-winning novels and so on. Rupertson still has shock value in the way he treats violence, sexuality, and his view of human relations as one of um, sometimes showing them to be extremely brutal and uh, mercenary, although there are more positive views as well and more cel- celebratory accounts of nature and um, artistic uh, achievement and a general joie de vivre, actually, which you get in other stories. So, I mean, just to sum up, I would read the famous one, Boulder Suisse, the one called The Necklace, La Parure, is, is certainly worth reading, simply because of the skill with which he manipulates the plot surprises although that is perhaps more plot-driven than character-driven, so one needs to bear that in mind. In fact, the basic advice I'd give is read the 10 stories that Maupassant wrote that are the longest. Um, Most of his stories are only about 10 pages long, but there's about 10 or so which are 20 to 60 pages long. So actually, length is a good criterion. The longer the story the better it tends to be, to put it simply. Before I rang you this morning, Chris, I was having a look at um, Maupassant's essay on Flaubert and talking about his place in the pantheon of of French literature. And that gave me an idea for my my last question to you, which is, did Maupassant himself have a sense of his place in the pantheon of French literature? Or was that not something which entered into his thinking? I think he had a sense, but never articulated it explicitly in that he describes a certain type of writing in his essays on Flaubert and other writers. He's very dismissive of what he calls amuseur, entertainers. The example that will be known to, to many listeners is, is Alexandre Dumas, the father, you know, who wrote these romantic novels, which we still read, like The Three Musketeers and Count of Monte Cristo. And Maupassant sees the writer as having not merely the obligation to, to write engagingly, but also as having a kind of aesthetic and ethical obligation, if you will, to write something that is innovative and not simply uh, catering to sort of mass taste. So he would have liked, I think, to have been seen very much as an heir of Flaubert. Flaubert didn't make a great deal of money from writing, but he certainly gained immense prestige from writing novels that are took him years to produce. 
um, and was still very highly regarded nowadays, although not necessarily the ones he perhaps took most time over. Maupassant wanted to be recognized as a great novelist, and I think that is questionable. And because the short story wasn't quite such a prestigious genre, he might have been slightly annoyed that, as, as our discussion rather illustrates, he's still seen primarily as, as a great teller of tales. But I personally think, you know, being a tale teller in some ways is perhaps more significant because I, I once thought about writing a study of Maupassant comparing with Robert Louis Stevenson, actually, who was his exact contemporary. He was also remembered primarily as a tale teller. And there's something kind of archetypal or mythic about tale telling. The novel is very much a, a creation, really, of sort of a, the 19th century, isn't it? But the tale teller, you know, goes back to the kind of origins of human society and culture and the whole attempt to explain ourselves, you know. So there's a kind of metaphysical, mythical dimension. I think Password Brookasson's appeal to, to people who get into his stories is sort of archetypal in a way in that the whole folkloric notion of of the story is an attempt to sum up human experience. And if you, if you look at sort of, sort of his stories in a more structuralist way, you can see that they actually conform to the pattern of certain fairy stories, either by following them or more often by reversing their premises. So I would see him very much as the tale teller. And I think it's his productivity that helped restore its um, significance as a genre. I was talking to Christopher Lloyd about his new biography of Maupassant, which is available in paperback from Reaction Books. The TLS called it a crisp, witty, balanced and well-informed guide. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find over 60 others available at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.